0: These great intellectuals, Richard Wright, W.B. Du Bois, and C.L.R. James, did not understand the black radical tradition until they studied revolutions. And all the nameless people who engaged in this general strike during Reconstruction, who engaged in the Haitian Revolution, who were basically the peasantry of the South, that they're the ones that demonstrated to them what the black radical tradition looked like. And what they learned was that its roots are not necessarily either in the contradictions of capital Or in the Western Enlightenment, but they're actually rooted in much older things that African people have carried with us, and we still carry with us.
1: That's Robin D.G. Kelly, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. Welcome to this special Black History Month program featuring Robin D.G. Kelly on the Black Radical Tradition. Historian and author Cedric Robinson defined the Black Radical Tradition as the continuing development of a collective consciousness informed by the historical struggles for liberation. The Black Radical Tradition is a rich and vibrant tapestry woven by the efforts of many Black people who raise their voices demanding freedom and equality, denied to them by racial capitalism. They broke through white supremacy and forged the black radical tradition. There were such giants as W.E.B. Du Bois, C.L.R. James, Frantz Fanon, and Malcolm X, and important cultural figures such as Langston Hughes, Lorraine Hansberry, James Baldwin, Paul Robeson, and Toni Morrison. Today, the legacy of these pioneers and many others inform and inspire black movements for liberation and justice, from Ferguson to Minneapolis to Memphis. A prominent figure in and chronicle of the black radical tradition is our guest speaker today, Robin D.G. Kelly. He's professor of history at UCLA a distinguished scholar and award-winning author. Among his many books are Race Rebels, Thelonious Monk, and Freedom Dreams. He spoke at Socialism 2022 in Chicago. And now, Robin D.G. Kelly.
0: So too often when we talk about socialism, we either discuss it in terms of socialist states, uh, you know what they can deliver that capitalist states cannot. And we talk about socialism in terms of sometimes the failure of socialist states to deliver on promises. You know, the, the critique of socialist states upholding democracy, et cetera. Or sometimes socialism gets framed through the lens of consumption and not production. And I'm, I'm old enough to remember how many times in, my, in the last 35 years I got, uh, the anti-social skeptics will say, Will I lose my house? Can I still have Nikes? <laughs> you know? And in those conversations, rarely does the problem of food security, clean water, livable wages, shelter, the lack of health care, education, or enduring the violence and militarism for the people who make the Nikes come up. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Right. So this is really important. We talk about socialism. Even in our privileged life, even a privileged working class, we've got to think about what the world is dealing with. The result of this kind of discourse of trying to win people over to socialism has led to um, a slew of popular books, and that is through the state. That is the idea that you know if we have a social state, these are the things you get. And it's led to this slew of popular books, which I describe as socialism without socialists, All right? Now, Freedom Dreams is not that book. I argue that social movements are the incubators of ideas about freedom, liberation, socialism. Uh, It is more about movements to create the new world than describing in abstract terms what the world would look like. Although we love that exercise, but that's not really what uh, the book's about, nor is it something that we just do on our own. We do together in collective. The book is fundamentally about socialism. The different paths movement people have imagined it might take to get there, for example. And in fact, in the original preface, I wrote about feeling alienated from the same old protest politics. And I asked the question, what had happened to the dream of liberation that brought many of us to radical movements in the first place? What had happened to socialism the way we imagined it, what had happened to our new Eden, our dreams of building a new society, and what had happened to hope and love in our politics. And I should say, this is something I wrote um, 2001, and that's what I was thinking at the time. In the book, socialism wasn't just relegated to the chapters that focused on Marxism, uh, or socialism, or communism or those parties, rather each chapter, every chapter in that book ultimately had a kind of socialist dream behind it, every chapter. So whether it was the black search for self-determination and autonomy, movement for third world liberation, surrealism, uh, black radical feminism, or reparations, every single one of those chapters had behind it a socialist dream. And in Freedom Dreams I also describe the vision of socialism as compelling if incomplete. And of course, we all know in a general sense uh, what made socialist movements and parties incomplete. Uh, And there's many, many specific senses, but one general sense is the persistence of white working class racism, of heteropatriarchal ideology, uh, the assumption that the European proletariat was the working class, and therefore the universal subject of class struggle. The long history of socialism of the First and sen- Second International uh, entails their failure to make anti racism central to its platform and its inability to be truly internationalist. No, I didn't say Third International because it's more complicated than that, because they actually did try to make racism or anti racism a central feature. The latter point, though, about not being truly internationalist, and when I say truly internationalist, Internationalism doesn't isn't Europe and North America, <laughs> right? Keep in mind that you're talking about internationalism of the second international in colonizing countries, and that's not to say they were not socialists who were like deeply anti-colonial. That's true. Some were, but many of those parties were not, and and I think this is what we talk about internationalism. So. This latter point about being truly internationalists um, deserves a little bit of elaboration because we tend to, to name nationalism as the problem. Uh, so the US and European left embraced certain nationalisms in the name of internationalism and rejected others because you know, you read 19th century, early 20th century writings, some of those cats believe that, the, that there were real historical nations in non-historical nations, Engels said this: I'm not making it up. Read it. That there's non-historical nations, and they're destined to wither away. What they often missed, though, was—and I may get myself in trouble for this—but I really want you to follow me because I'm trying to make a, I'm trying to thread a very careful needle here. Not all nationalisms were the same. Yes, the Second International succumbed to nationalist ideology when workers lined up to support their ruling class in World War I. Yes, nationalism tragically birthed European fascism as a mass movement. And internationalism was the foil against it. Internationalism was what brought people to Spain, right? Internationalism was the foil against the the nationalism that produced fascism. What's interesting, and remember what happens after World War II even during World War II, is that that internationalism was defeated by the very Western capitalist nations declaring war on fascism. Those cats who went to, to Spain to fight, where do they end up? They end up in front of House American Activities Committee. They end up in jails. They end up you know, all over the globe. Now, at the same time, as Cedric Robinson points out in Black Marxism, the anti-capitalist and anti-colonial struggles that often embraced Socialist politics were nationalists organized in the name of national liberation. Vijay Prashad talks about this, he calls it the Third World Project. Some of these moments had corollaries in this country, which I write about in Freedom Dreams, uh, the Revolutionary Action Movement, the Provisional Government for the Republic of New Africa, uh, or in the collectives and movements that were uh, not necessarily nationalists, but they were black or third world. You know, they were not exclusionary but they were trying to build power around specific issues to their community. So the Combahee River Collective, for example. And by the way, if you go back and really study the nationalism of those movements, they were incredibly inclusionary. You know, it's like, you fighting for the black nation? Do you know how many white folks went to prison fighting for the black nation? Like Susan Rosenberg? I mean, you could go down the list. We forget that some of the white radicals of the 60s and 70s who went to prison, they were actually supporting the Black Liberation Army or the Panthers you know, or the anti-Klan movement and these kinds of things, Freedom Road. They were fighting for black liberation. So these were openings. In any case, all of these movements identified themselves as socialists or promoting socialism, but they did not accept the conceit that uh, socialism was born solely out of the contradictions of capitalist society, okay? So follow me here. This plays into the kind of Marxist stadial theory of history, stadial meaning that there's stages in history, Uh, and that treats as a logical succession capitalism, then socialism, then communism. Like you start with capitalism and even the, the belief that every nation has to go through a bourgeois democratic revolution and then you build the productive forces, and then after that, you can sort of seize state power, create a social state, and eventually the state will wither away. And one of the limitations of this 19th century Marxist framework is that it conflated the emergence of socialism with the appearance of the modern bourgeoisie in the proletariat. But again, to go back to Cedric, uh, he says this in Black Marxism, but he also says it in a book called An Anthropology of Marxism, He writes, socialist thought did not begin with or depend on the existence of capitalism, as Marx, Engels, and Kautsky and later Marxists have dictated. But historical materialism demanded that for a socialistic mode of production, capitalism had to be prior. Thus, any expression of socialist principles prior to the maturation of the capitalist system was primitive or utopian. I don't know anyone who's read Marx more carefully than Cedric, by the way. And what he's also referencing is the fact that, you know, by the time Lenin comes on the scene, he and others are thinking, okay, well, you know what? Forget about stages for now. If we can get socialism, we'll get socialism. And that was a, a, a kind of radical break. But anyway, to go back to Cedric, he maps the origins of European socialism back to the fourth century, to the Baptists, to the Christian socialists. In other words, he's saying, socialism predated capitalism by a long way, because the origins of socialism were not in the mode of production, but in morality, in an ethic. As a consequence, and this is me talking, this is not him, but so as a consequence, we have been bequeathed in an impoverished and limited notion of what socialism or post capitalist society might be. And I'm not suggesting we return to the ancient Christian socialists because there are problems too in terms of what was happening in the fourth century, but rather socialist visions need not always refer back to Marx, Engels, Lenin, Mao, et cetera, in order for us to have a, a kind of blueprint or vision of socialism. So if there is a socialist project today, it requires changing how we think, how we relate to one another. How we relate to the land, how we relate to science, right? Yes, the concept of science is critical in principle. You know, like I'm all for that, um, you know, against disinformation, science, science, science is good, science ends superstitions, science is against old tradition-bound structures of patriarchy. But we should remain skeptical of Western science as a product of enlightenment rationality the ideological seeds for the cultivation of capitalism, imperialism, and settler colonialism. You know, all the the, the economists on the 8th floor of Bunch Hall at UCLA, they believe in science. And what they talk about is just bullshit, yeah. right? And that's supposed to be science. You know, they're running data regressions and stuff. I'm like, <laughs> so why is this important? It's important partly because one of the lessons I think Freedom Dreams offers or tries to offer is that the socialist project isn't just about changing material conditions it is a spiritual and ethical project it has to be it is a psychological cultural and dare i say civilizational project in the sense that we need to create a new kind of civil society and let me give you a concrete example i mean a lot of us on the left love the climate change argument for socialism. Because what it does, it restores a particular kind of universalism that the left has relied upon. And that is, now we've all made this argument that, you know, we have to save the planet. Climate catastrophe is a great unifier. Just like they said, COVID's a great unifier, right? Because we all experience COVID. And, you know, there's a logic to that. Yes, socialism could actually is the answer to trying to reverse the damage of climate change possibly. And I'm all for that, I love it, I'm not against it. My concern is I don't think existential threats and material conditions alone, alone, should be the basis for socialism. You've got to step it up. So an obvious one is, t- to go back to the climate catastrophe, it's, it's, you know, it's certainly capitalism's doing, we know that. Uh, and it is gendered and it is racial capitalism that situates us differently to the toxic environment and destruction wrought by the system. And so if we say stop worrying about racism, sexism, transphobia, homophobia, ageism, ableism, if you just say we're gonna stop doing that and defend uh, the earth, then we'll all be able to live together. Then we don't actually deal with the differential relationship because some of us are dying faster and sooner under the climate catastrophe than others, and that's something we have to attend to. And again, this is not just the United States. I'm talking about the whole planet. If you're talking about the planet, I'm talking about the whole world. Um, another thing: a room full of abolitionists. Eliminating cages isn't just about saving money. But it's also about ending torture and violence. Ending racism isn't something you do only through the law or affirmative action. It is about confronting trauma. It is about education and reparations and repair. To be abolitionist is not simply about removing these structures and not even just about replacing it with something else. It's about lived experience and the damage that capitalism, racial capitalism has done to us and how do we heal and what does that entail, okay? So let us pause for a moment and since I did mention reparations, uh, I wanna talk about the attack on the demand for reparations coming from a segment of the left. Um, some of those cats look like me. Uh, in the name of defeating race reductionism. Now reparations is regarded in this, discourse as a hustle. Okay, now let me be fair. It is becoming a hustle. <laughs> let's let's be clear about that. In some circles, in the hands of the black bourgeoisie, it is and its allies, reparations is becoming the latest hustle. Let me explain what I mean by that and let me explain what I try to do. Uh, namely, in its popular liberal expression in the US, uh reparations, the way it's being kind of mapped out does not change the terms of racial capitalism at all. Nor does it acknowledge land theft and native dispossession as part of the same process of settler colonial extraction that depended on the theft of human beings. The logic of liberal reparations is firmly rooted in property rights. It's rooted in documentation. If you don't have a subscription to ancestry.com, don't even bring your papers up there right don't use someone else's subscription Um, and it's 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 rooted in in compensation without transformation that is without addressing uh, indigenous dispossession for example proposals in this framework tend to think about or frame reparations entirely within a capitalist political economy so payments are calculated according to capitalist principles outcomes are even seen as strengthening capitalism, making it more fair and less racist, so that we can actually continue with a non racial capitalism. That's the part of the argument, which is hilarious when you think about it. Creating an even playing field so we can compete together. And the case for reparations has become increasingly parochial, driven by the demands of the Eidos people, the American descendants of slavery. For example, this is a book by Bill Darity and Kirsten Mullen who is a great economist, uh, an amazing figure, I just disagree with the book, which is called From Here to, e- to Equality, which not only argues that reparations should be limited to US descendants of the enslaved who can document their genealogy, but they dismiss Asian Americans, for example, whom they deem voluntary uh, immigrants who directly benefited from the US Jim Crow regime now, let me just give some history here. It's an odd and ahistorical assertion, because it betrays an ignorance of a long history of forced Asian labor, which of course replaced a uh, formal chattel slavery. The first thing they did was they got so-called coolie labor, contract labor, um, throughout the Western Hemisphere. And also, it ignores the ways in which US wars in Asia, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, produced refugees, right? so. Mainly, this plan for reparations not only strengthens capitalism, but maintains class relations and class power and actually does nothing to address contemporary racism. It does nothing to stop organized abandonment. It does nothing to end mass incarceration and all forms of unfree labor and disposability and it does not restore or expand the social wage or address the conditions that render some people vulnerable to all sorts of violence. However, the way I wrote about reparations and freedom dreams you know, actually operated on socialist principles. And let me make a plug for Fermi Taiwo's book, Reconsidering Reparations, which makes a similar argument with even more nuance and detail than, than I did, but reparations you know, in that chapter uh, in Freedom Dreams was supposed to, was imagined to fund revolutionary movements, not put money in pockets of individuals, but they're like $10 million for the National Welfare Rights Movement (laughs) as reparations, $20 million for African liberation movements, $20 million for a a black college, which says a lot about what they thought of black colleges (laughs) Um, at the time. So, you know, when you think about, you have the Black Workers Congress, the provisional government of the Republic of New Africa, and INCOBRA and the like, what they wanted to do was bring down the US empire. That was the point of reparations. It was about social justice, reconstructing our lives as a people, ending all forms of racism and exploitation, and creating a new nation. This is why reparations proposals from black radical movements focused not on individual payments, but securing funds to build black institutions and in some cases, establish a homeland. And they imagine new economic arrangements geared toward collective needs rather than accumulation. So as I wrote in Freedom Dreams two decades ago, uh, reparations has the potential to radically transform society, redistributing wealth, creating a democratic and caring public culture, exposing the ways capitalism and slavery produce massive inequality. It helps us all understand how wealth and poverty are made under capitalism, particularly a capitalism shaped immeasurably by slavery and racism. It stresses the fact that labor, not CEOs, not scientists and technicians, not the magic of the so-called free market, creates wealth. It ought to compel us to pay attention to the centrality of racism in the US political economy because one of the consequences of racial differentials in income and economic opportunity is downward pressure on wages for all working people. Um, And then I also add just very quickly, it should make us look at gender and consider women's unpaid labor, reproduction, sexual abuse, and ways to make restitution for these distinctive forms of exploitation. The last thing I want to talk about is the socialist project and the vulnerability to state violence um, and states' violence, more than one state. This is important because um, much of what falls under the socialist project is not takeover state power. And then like you take power, then you implement socialist policies. Um, Even the Russian Revolution, which came the closest to that, didn't quite work out that way. And in fact, trying to build socialist alternatives as they go, you know, both within and outside the state, is one of the challenges. And I wanna really emphasize this because actual movements, in other words, if you shift from socialism to socialists, you're talking about people making movements and engaging in practice, which leads them to being vulnerable to repression. So early 20th century jails and graves and ships deporting people are full of socialists just so you know Um, in the 1960s and 70s in today's jails they're full of socialists but we don't see them that way because they were panthers new africans american indian movement puerto rican independence Weathermen. you're hard pressed to find any of these folks in those movements fighting for capitalism right now Existing socialists face repression. There's much to celebrate about the left in Chile and Colombia. Of course, both, you know, have socialist leadership winning by slim electoral margins. In the case of Colombia, under Gustavo Petro and Francia uh, Marquez Mina, they not only don't have a parliamentary mandate to introduce the kind of radical changes that we wish they can, But Petro built a coalition that included elements of the capitalist class, the oligarchy that's still driving Colombia's economy. And Francia Marquez Mina, to be clear, she's on the left of Petro. Like, she she doesn't agree with all those positions, and we're gonna see what happens next, because she was opposed to some of the compromises that were made. And in Chile today, as you know, under Gabriel Boric, the future of Chile is gonna look like Venezuela and Cuba and all this other stuff we have to defend the revolution we have to defend the regime vigilantly because we know what happened next year is the 50th anniversary of the u.s overthrow of allende so we have to begin with actual socialist movements and one last thing i want to share before i do one last reading and that is if you follow the news talk about state repression you would know that on july 29 2022 the FBI orchestrated a pre-dawn raid on the headquarters of the African People's Socialist Party. And we should all be upset about that. They brought an army. This is the Biden-Harris, or the Harris-Biden. I don't know how you want to look at it. I mean, she's the cop. But they brought an army, armed tactical gear, battering rams, flashbang grenades, assault rifles, drones, they were detained, placed in handcuffs, and had their cell phones, computers seized, as well as foul cabinets filled with financial records and archives. The African People's Socialist Party has been around for literally half a century. And they're persistently anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist, while at the same time creating their own solidarity economy. They have a bakery, they have housing, they're trying to do something different. Russia and China are used as justification for this new domestic Cold War attacks on socialists and i know the dsa is bigger now than probably ever but watch out they're coming for you you got to be prepared if they don't come from you for you you should be worried (laughs) i know they come for for the afro-socialists trust me because they always do (laughs) think about that you know what does it mean to talk about socialism in this age of of reactionary anti-woke wokeness right so liberal multiculturalism becomes the latest leftist enemy.
1: You're listening to Robin D.G. Kelly on the Black Radical Tradition. This is Independent Alternative Radio. For copies of this program and Professor Kelly's book, Freedom Dreams, just call us 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977 or go online, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. So let me just end
0: by, with a reading of a passage from the new epilogue of the new edition, and it's called Poetarian Poetarian Revolution is Here. And it opens up a longer discussion about Jackson, Mississippi, and Detroit, and against a repressive state neoliberal governance. This is what revolution looks like. It begins with what Fred Moten and Stefano Harney call fugitive planning. It is woven from the spontaneous revolts of poets who set the world in motion with their words, their bodies, their songs, their art. Revolutions are not singular events but long dreams shared by aggrieved communities, nurtured in fugitive spaces and enacted by social movements. Even in dark times, revolutions are nourished in liberated zones, the spaces we create where we can grow our souls, as Grace Lee Boggs aptly put it. This is what true revolutions are about, she wrote. They are about redefining our relationships with one another to the earth and to the world, about creating a new society in the places and spaces left vacant by the disintegration of the old and about hope, not despair about saying yes to life and no to war, about finding the courage to love and care for the peoples of the world as we love and care for our own families. And that's Grace Lee Boggs. So what Grace proposes is no dream. The maroon poets in liberated zones are everywhere, hiding in plain sight, turning image into deed, turning poetry into action, artists turning freedom dreams from noun to verb. In the introduction to this volume, Um, Aja Monet and her crew are the original maroon poets, the poem in action, the defenders of the dream, who understood freedom to mean everything, freedom to imagine, freedom from police, prisons, and poverty, freedom of movement, freedom of mind, freedom to be, and those are Aja's words. The scholar activist and poet Alexis Pauline Gumbs offered one of the clearest articulations of what it means to create liberated zones in which abolition is practiced, where the world we want is constantly in rehearsal, built on memories, experiences, and an ethic of care. These practices become the freedom seeds for a different future. She asked, quote, What if abolition is something that sprouts out of the wet places in our eyes, the broken places in our skin, the waiting places in our palms? What if abolition is something that grows? What if abolishing the prison, industrial complex, is the fruit of our diligent gardening, building and deepening of a movement to respond to the violence of the state in the violence in our communities with sustainable transformative love. Image becomes deed. Detroit, like Jackson, is becoming a liberated zone where poets and solutionaries of every generation are unafraid to build what they haven't seen or fight a system that has uh, wreaked havoc on the land in our lives for five centuries. They understand that freedom dreaming is not a luxury or a fantasy, and that our very survival depends on turning dreams of decolonization, redistribution, reparation, and abolition into action. Long before COVID-19 inspired writer, critic, and revolutionary Arundhati Roy to famously describe the pandemic as, quote, a portal, a gateway between one world and the next, Detroit's and Jackson's freedom dreamers had been digging their own portal to the next world, not waiting for a crisis or opportunity to seize the moment. They haven't stopped digging, right? So last two sentences, socialism means to keep digging, right? And think about digging in multiple ways, keep digging, both the portal and the trenches. It requires to quote one of the greatest living intellectuals, sustained creative aggression Thank you.
2: Robin, I wanted to ask you about um, this balance between solidarity work and support and then also criticism. I started, my, my kind of entry into socialist politics was doing Cuban solidarity work. And so I'm wondering, especially with your, your piece about Defending socialism and mm-hmm. defending those regimes, how you would, how you I guess, grapple with support and then also, you know, understanding criticism or the role of cr- critique, and also knowing our place. Like mm. um, I don't know if that makes sense. But. Well, it
0: makes perfect. Okay. It's an excellent question. Thank you. Should I, should I take another one? Or just
2: my question is nowhere near as beautiful as that. I think I'm slowly leaning to being okay with identifying as a socialist. <laughs> 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 Socialist and black in Texas has been a very weird mix and just to be honest in my experience white people have all but turned me off from anything socialist so I'm here and I'm seeing my people speak I guess the question I have for you is a couple of things part of this is like knowing that you don't have the answers it's part of a collective struggle right um, it's like I think we still need to do more. Like we need to have these type of conversations, collectives, converses in places like Texas, Louisiana, Alabama. Mm -hmm.
0: That's right. Uh, I
2: I, I don't know why that person is screaming so loud, but I I hope it's um, because they agree with this statement that I'm about to say. It's because like, I I agree with even the, the tagline, black radical imagination, but from being in a place like Texas, it's harder for people to have the imagination, and all these other things, when your very existence is in survival mode. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and and that's why I think these conversations are so much needed in the South, where even in Texas right now, people don't have ACs in prisons. Mm-hmm. This shouldn't exist. Right. Right. Um, where where we talk about borders earlier, we talked about borders, but in Texas, we had babies wrapped in full sheets um, because of you know every administration, not just. Trump mm-hmm. but also right, this right. one um, you, you know like even when the Haitians were seeking refugees they just miraculously disappeared in like two days mm-hmm. so it's just like until we respect the South and also until we understand that as the grouse so, as the South grows so does the nation mm-hmm. um, I feel like we're leaving so many people left behind so I, I don't know if it was question in there but you can yeah. take it. do it down. Yeah.
0: You, and, and I'm, I'm going to get to both questions, but this I'm going to take yours first because it's really, really important for lots of different reasons. The South is the most radical place in this country, you know, and that's, we don't always get that. I remember um, after, the, after Trump's election, I had all these colleagues, and you said, oh, we got to do something about the South. And I wrote something actually in, the, in Boston Review saying, you know, you're all sleeping on the South." I said, the reason why it's so repressive is because it's the most radical place. That's why the, the, the regime of punishment, the regime of violence, the fact that you have states like Alabama and Texas passing, changing their state constitutions because they can't win any other way. Let, let's remember that in the 1930s, you know, we talk about fascism, and people say, oh, don't use the F word, don't use the F word, you know, but in the night, before the 1960s and, and to this day, but especially before the 1960s, the South was bona fide fascist, and I could prove it. You could prove it because it was a one-party state. It would deny the right to vote. It put corralled people, used violence to control people, um, and all those senators and congressmen ran all the committees because they had the most seniority. So they. So in, in the reason that there was no anti-lynching law in the United States was because Roosevelt and all the people, all the presidents after that, were like, well, we, you know, the, the Southern senators are more powerful and we do what they say. And so black people and all the people, including the poor white people, came up under fascism in the South. That's true and it continues. But it's a place where you find the most vibrant, most militant oppositional movements and it's where, you know, I chose to write about the South, where socialism was most vibrant, and that's the place. So I'm with you. We have to have these conversations. We also have to re rethink our history, like like remember that you know when we talk about Juneteenth, for example. Did, there's all this mythology around Juneteenth, as if somehow like black people didn't know that savior is over, and then here comes the union, and it's just not true. The fact is. That you know, Galveston was in Union hands. It was defeated by the Confederates in, in eighteen sixty-three, and then they got it back. Black people, of course, they knew, you know, of course they knew that's, that's, and, and more importantly, if you look at the traditions of struggle within Texas itself, you know, Galveston was a working-class city with a strong union, and black workers led white workers on the docks. They were the leaders of the labor movement in Galveston after juneteenth and so june and and so the fact that juneteenth was called by our people jubilee that means a lot biblically it means it's the time when you forgive all debts it's a time when you you basically secure freedom for the most downtrodden and, and hold it and you recognize whose land it really is so i'm with you on that we have to have these conversations and we have to stop thinking of the south as the backward place and think of it more as the vanguard, because that's where it's been. <laughs> and, and one last thing in terms of what you said yes, my experience is that the folks who have almost nothing or trying to eke away to live each day are often the ones thinking hardest about how to get from point A to, to point Z as opposed to point B. In other words, it just it's not an accident that some of the folks who sort of presented us the the Black Radical imagination are not necessarily the intellectuals, not the ones with have written books or doctorates. Part of what Cedric Robinson writes about in Black Marxism is that these great intellectuals, Richard Wright, W.B. Du Bois, and CLR James, did not understand the Black Radical tradition until they studied revolutions and all the nameless people who engaged in this general strike during Reconstruction, who engaged in the Haitian Revolution, who were basically the peasantry of the South, that they're the ones that demonstrated to them what the black radical tradition looked like. And what they learned was that its roots are not necessarily either in the contradictions of capital or in the Western Enlightenment, but they're actually rooted in much older things that African people have carried with us and we still carry with us. So these are the things we have to study and understand. Um, On the question of, of criticism, this is a very important, this is a critical question because socialist regimes are not perfect. And there's no reason to be silent on our criticism. In fact, we have to be critical all the time. We do have to be critical of socialist regimes, openly, honestly, forthrightly, at the same time and this I learned from my friend Vijay Prashad, you can still be critical and defend the right of self-determination of socialist regimes. Right now, there's a war in China, and much of what we are told about how terrible things are, and there's some things that are terrible. I would argue China's not a socialist state. It's a state capitalist, you know, just like the Soviet Union became state capitalist, and that's true. But that doesn't mean that, okay, so therefore as a leftist, let's support the U.S. military state to wage war in China, really? It should be unacceptable, it should be unacceptable. So I'm just saying we have to be critical both of other regimes, we have to be critical of our movements and critical of each other in a way that's loving. Because if you really do criticism well, the most loving thing you can do is to critique, and the reason why I say that is because you don't critique to make someone feel bad. You don't critique to make yourself feel good. You don't critique to prove to everyone in the room that you know so much. You critique because our life depends on getting the right answers. You know.
3: I think we got time for two more uh, comrades right there. Um,
0: and then right there.
3: Wow, thank you so much. Deeply, okay. deeply respect and
4: appreciate you. I'm here with the Black Youth Project 100 as a board mm-hmm. member. I want to bring into the conversation Olufemi Taiwo, Reconsidering Reparations, which is in the re- most recent book that I've read. Right. I'm really trying to encourage people at this conference to really think about the revolutionary socialist reality of reparation mm-hmm. and how it is critical for us to really be able to engage in that conversation. Because I think that if we're not actually having a conversation about that, then are we really contending with the realities of racial right. capitalism right. and the global racial empire as Olufemi calls it, and I also want to uplift what Chad has been saying. I'm also from Texas, Beaumont, Texas, 80 miles southeast of Houston, um, just on the Gulf Coast, you know, a 30 minute drive from Lake Charles, yeah. Louisiana. Um, though today I live in Brooklyn, New York. So just a question about reconsidering reparations, about the socialist case for reparations and the importance for us to talk about that. Hello.
3: Thank, Thank you. you so much uh, for just continuing to contribute to the black radical tradition and just your work on racial capitalism. And just like you being like a black socialist in this space is just so uplifting to me as a black socialist who is going to continue to do this work but also i want to just uh thank you again for continuously calling in our black radical ancestors Mm -hmm. um because like i celebrated the idea of someone coming into socialism or coming into the practice that we can't control our future as the majority because a lot of times like when I was coming into socialism, a lot of what I saw, if I were dependent on just like the mainstream media a mainstream just sort of like books or a lot of the canon, I would've thought that socialism was just this white thing. But when I started to actually dive deeper, like I saw like W.E.B. Du Bois, Thomas Sankara, the Black Panther Party, the Kambahi River Collective, like Freedom Magazine, all these different like, oh, C.L.R. James in the writing about the Haitian right. Revolution, wow. And, um, and so I'm just so excited about this just on the just on the point of just like re- representation cuz I stand here as a black non-binary pansexual polyamorous socialist and I'm so happy to be a part of the tradition. I just appreciate you being here because I don't know like I wouldn't have been a socialist if it wasn't for Frantz Fanon. And mm-hmm. so like I just thank you so much for just existing.
0: Right. Well, I gotta begin with with what you said, Brian, because you have to understand, and those people who know me um, uh, know that it's like y'all are my breath. I mean, my breath. I am so fortunate to see the work that you all do. Um, And I've said it more than once, I said that, that, that this generation of radicals, I won't call them socialists, because some people will claim the term, some people will not. I think it's the greatest generation, much greater than mine. There's a way in which you all are out there in the streets, fighting, 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 coming back, thinking, 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 fighting, fighting, finding ways to talk to one another, that is to say that you struggle with each other to come up with ways to respect one another and respect the world you're trying to build which is not necessarily how we came up as as marxists we came up beating people up you know um not physically but in a way that was really emotional uh and we didn't love each other when you all repeat Asada shakur and say it over and over again we didn't say that in my day the bravery the courage the militancy the refusal the radicalness is something that I I've never written about that because it hasn't happened I'm trying to write about it now because you're all making it so don't so don't thank me I mean I'm I'm just thankful for your existence because that's how we keep going so I appreciate that and which is kind of tied to the your question too and also the work that you're doing you know on the, the the socialist case for reparations you know I will never Succeed in winning the argument because there's such um, inertia around reparations from a certain segment of the left. I don't really understand it, but I, but I, I no, that's I take it back. I do understand it because of the ways in which, as I mentioned in my talk, reparations could easily be co-opted and become something else. But for that matter, that goes for everything. Socialism, yes. mm-hmm. you know, there's lots of things that happen in the name of socialism that were about capital accumulation mm-hmm. and about violence. Mm-hmm. So part of what you're suggesting or asking, and I think what Femi's book tries to do, is to think about what is the revolutionary reparations project or program. Okay. He makes a, a sophisticated argument, and part of that argument has to do with uh, reparations both as a source of education of, of rethinking the way we understand how the world operates uh, reparations as a massive ca- capital transfer one of the things that's possible with with reparations and keep in mind reparations is a global phenomenon most reparations campaigns are not even about slavery it's about things like you know state violence you know we have campaigns, campaigns in Colombia the Afro-Colombian community demanding reparations for Years of genocide, you know. Um, there's reparations. In Guatemala re- reparations um, for the war and wars in Iraq. So there's a lot to, to repair. Um, but I think it's important that if we're going to make a road case for re- reparations, we can't make it solely about money. It is about re. is about a redistributing wealth. B recognizing the relationship between one class's wealth and the violence visited upon all kinds of other people. Um, It is about trying to repair relationships, not to make friends between ruling classes and the oppressed, but to eliminate the ruling class. That's the point, we don't need a ruling class. Um, And I I would make the suggestion, because I still think it's one of the most extraordinary documents ever written, is to look at the Black Manifesto, which is the Black Workers' Congress and the Black Economic Development Council, they, they put together this document, and they weren't asking for that much money. I think it was like $3 million at some point, and they went to churches, churches and synagogues. You know, they wouldn't even go to the state. But my point about that document is that, just like Ruthie Ruth Wilson Gilmore talks about the budget is a, a kind of, is a moral document, the Black Manifesto is a moral document. They're saying, we want the redistribution of wealth for these purposes. And nowhere does it say, and everyone get a Mercedes. You know? <laughs> it doesn't say that. It says we want to use this money to rebuild and fight. To, they want to give money to movements to fight back and to eventually um, overthrow a, a vicious ruling class and create something new for the future. And I wanna say all that because I, I just want us to make sure that we don't have a knee-jerk defense of reparations as if all reparations, proposals, and plans are good. I think one of the, I mean, this is just me, don't get mad at me, but one of the dumbest things I've ever seen, um, but I think it's, I call it performance art. I don't think it's that actual, is the idea that you find a white person to Venmo you some money. <laughs> and that's reparations. Now. I'm all for if this white people want to Venmo black people money, that's great. That's not, that's not the point. But if you say that substitutes for reparations, what you're saying is that you're telling somebody, you can feel better. You can have your conscience clear. If you just Venmo 300 dollars every month to such and such a person, and they could, you know, they can buy their weed, they could, you know get their house, they could do whatever it is they want to do. That's not reparations. Reparations is remaking our relationship to the class, you know? And one last thing I'll say about this is that one of the, one of the critiques of, rep, of the reparations proposals that are about, um, and by the way, Queen Mother Moore, um, who was, who her reparations program, she was like $500 trillion, you know? She wasn't playing, <laughs> and, and she was mad because people said, well, you know, you don't, black people don't need reparations, it's got all these welfare payments, She's like, what, you know? But if you think about even Queen Mother Moore, part of what reparations payments in terms of supporting communities would do is that everyone who lives in those communities that are victims of organized abandonment would have an effusion of, of capital, an effusion of resources, all the things you're supposed to have. And if you're not black and you live in that community, you benefit from that. And to me, that's perfectly okay. That's great because chances are the people living in those communities, if it's not being gentrified, are not there because they wanna be. (laughs) They're there because the system has put them in a precarious situation where they're living with a whole lot of black poor people and brown poor people. And so if other people benefit from, or if the health system, for example, benefits from infusions of capital, then everyone should benefit and that's okay. Finally, when Fermi talks about reconsidering reparations, he's also thinking globally. And we have to think about this always globally. It cannot be limited to the nation state. So anyway, that's
1: it, thank you. You were just listening to a Black History Month special program with Robin D.G. Kelly on the black radical tradition. Robin D.G. Kelly, a professor of history at UCLA, is a distinguished scholar and author of many books. His latest is Freedom Dreams. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We're an independent progressive nonprofit in our 37th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Arundhati Roy, Angela Davis, Juan Gonzalez, Vijay Prashad, and Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. For copies of today's program, Robin D.G. Kelly on the Black Radical Tradition, and for his book *Freedom Dreams*, just give us a call: one eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven. That's one eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free of charge. Just give us a call, 1-800-444-1977. Joe Richie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with Tracy Chapman, Don't you Talking About a Revolution.
2: Talking About a Revolution Sounds Don't you know Talking about a revolution, it sounds like a whisper. While they're standing in the welfare lines, crying at the doorsteps of those armies of salvation, wasting time in the unemployment lines, sitting around waiting for a promotion. Don't you know, talking about a Gonna rise up, and
1: get this, yeah